for pointing us to the Lamb. Heavenly Father, as we come this morning to thy word, we thank you that you've prepared our hearts through that precious song. And Father, were it not for Calvary's Lamb, we would ever be lost in our sin with no hope. But Lord, help us as we look into your word to realize the hope we have in Christ now. Those of us who have put our faith and trust in him. Speak, Lord, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you'll take your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're beginning a study in this tremendous letter by the Apostle Paul that he wrote to the church at Corinth. Now, as you recall, we looked at last Sunday the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. But we used that as a springboard to bring us to this book. If you remember, we talked about what Paul was writing to the church in 1 Thessalonians. He was writing to a church that was shining for Christ. Their testimony was almost going worldwide in, in Asia Minor and all the other churches. Anyone who heard about that church, they said, that's a special church. And the reason was, Paul told them and commended them that they were being imitators of the Apostle Paul. And therefore, Paul was an imitator of Christ. And so, in other words, the church in Thessalonica, the Christians there were imitating Christ. And as we think of that subject, imitating Christ in our own personal lives, Paul is going to deal with this with the church in Corinth who were having trouble doing just that, imitating Christ. Oh yeah, they were good in some areas, but they were having trouble in others. And so basically, we're going to see, how do I learn to imitate Christ in my life as a believer? And I believe we will find those answers in the letter written to the Corinthians here, that the Apostle Paul sent to them. Just a little background uh, to the church in Corinth and the city of Corinth. Uh, this, the Apostle Paul actually went to Corinth and uh, on his second missionary journey, and there he would attend the synagogue. But I want you to see the results of that and how the church at Corinth was founded. So turn with me to Acts chapter 18. If you go to Acts 18 with me, we see the account. Acts 18, verse 1. <clears throat> After these things, he, speaking of Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come to Italy with his wife Priscilla. 
because Claudius had commanded that all Jews leave Rome. And he came to them, Paul came to them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, Aquila and Priscilla. And they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. Remember that Paul was did on the side to help supplement his income so he wouldn't burden the churches financially? He made tents and sold them. Well, he comes to Corinth and he finds a, a Christian couple that had left Rome and taken off because the new emperor, Claudius, around 400 AD, had said, we got to get rid of these Jews out of the city. And the main reason why he wanted the Jews out of the city of Rome was because many of the Jews were coming to Christ. And so you had the Jews who were accepting Christ as Savior, and now they were sharing the gospel, but they were, it was causing division among the Jewish people. And therefore, because most of the Christians were Jewish Christians in Rome, it was causing such an uproar and stir that Claudius said, Let's get the Jews out of here. And of course, there'd be great persecution as well to follow. But here the Apostle Paul, just so you understand, here he is. He meets with this uh, new couple and uh, gets to know them. And we pick it up again at verse 4. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks but when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to what? The word. Solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. When they had resisted and blasphemed, he shook off his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads, and I am clean. From now on, I shall go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and went to the house of a certain man named Titus Justice, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So here we see how the church was founded. Paul went there and preached the gospel. It stirred up trouble, of course. But, and many uh, of the Jews who were in that synagogue, as Paul shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he was the Messiah, there were a number of them, including some, some of the leaders and priests of that synagogue, accepted Christ as Savior. And so, so began the church in Corinth. Now, the city itself, if you look back and consider the city of Corinth, um, it was a center for trade. It was a great city uh, with three harbors. And those harbors, ships would go in and out 
And so there would be a lot of merchandise and money coming into the city that it was basically a very wealthy city. It was a wealthy one. And so in Paul's time, if you were uh, from Corinth, it could be good or it could be bad. Because the people in Corinth were getting a reputation. You see, the city would uh, worship their gods, but one of the main gods they worshipped was Aphrodite. Venus is her other name, the goddess of love. And that was at the center of the city. And that temple had over a thousand ministers. Now think of this, a thousand ministers who were hired by the temple, uh, the, uh, the leaders of the temple. At night, these so-called messengers would go into the city of Corinth and they would sell themselves as prostitutes. And that was going on every day. And so when you think of this, Corinth became such a sinful city. There was so much sin, but not only sexual sin, but also they were known for their drunkenness of all things. They were known for drinking and drinking and, and, and partying and just living it up and getting drunk. In fact, if they put on anywhere, they put on a Greek play. If there was a, a, a theater and they put on a play, any one actor who was playing the part of a Corinthian had to be drunk in the play automatically because drunks basically identify most Corinthians. So this is what kind of city it was. If you want to kind of tie it into a modern day city, you might say it's the Las Vegas of its time. And so with this in mind, let's go back to 1 Corinthians because this is an important backdrop to understanding why Paul is writing this letter and what the believers in this church were up against. And I think of it, you know, I think of Corinth, but I, I see this, the things of Corinth, which, of course, we see in cities like Las Vegas, but it's spreading across our nation, that almost our whole nation is becoming like Corinth, with all the sin and ungodliness and debauchery. And so Paul is going to write to the church because there is a need here he has to address. So look with me at verses 1 through 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul writes, Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all 
who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul begins his letter. Notice in verse 1, he begins his letter by giving his qualifications and who he was, identifying himself. And here in particular, he writes, Paul, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, what does he add to that? By the will of God. This is important. Because there were people in the church in Corinth that when Paul's name was brought up, they basically thought, ah, he's not a real apostle. Are you kidding? We have the 12 apostles, the one who walk, ones who walked with Christ, knew him. And so basically some of them says, why is he calling himself an apostle? And so they... You know, they would put Paul down. They'd speak ill of him. And, and there would be divisions in the church over it. And so Paul is opening his letter by telling them, I want you to remember this. I am an apostle. But why am I an apostle? Not because I choose to put the name on me and say, well, I'm coming into the ministry. I'm going to be apostle. No. Uh, he says, I am an apostle by the will of God, which he's saying to them, this has nothing to do with what you think or what I think or what man thinks, but God chose me to be an apostle. Now, when we think of the word apostle, what does it mean? Well, it's the Greek word in the Greek. It's the word apostolos. And that Greek word basically means a sent one. It's like sending a special ambassador. But in the sense of being an apostle, one of the original apostles, what was the key, um, uh, I guess, uh, key thing that kept uh, all the 12 together and elevated as apostles? It was because they witnessed Jesus risen from the dead. They witnessed and talked to the risen Christ. And so that set them apart as sent ones who were eyewitnesses that Jesus is alive. Well, as we look into Paul's life, do you remember what happened to him? How God called him on the road to Damascus, right? You remember a great light shone down, blinding him. And does anybody remember the word suddenly that came from heaven? Saul, Saul. It was his name was Saul at that point because he was persecuting the church. Yes, thank you. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul is persecuting Christians. But suddenly a voice from heaven says, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Of course, this was then the Lord Jesus Christ himself appearing through a voice. We don't know if it was visibly, but we know it was a voice spoke to him. And we knew it was Christ because he says, why are you persecuting me? Because Jesus was saying, if you persecute one of my people, 
you're persecuting me, Saul. And this is when Saul had a person-to-person experience with the living Christ. And so therefore, he had his calling, and he therefore became that 13th apostle, though people argued over it. So he made that clear. No, notice he, he, is, he adds in his introduction, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. He was a believer who was saved in Corinth and then left Corinth to travel with Paul and become one of his companions. And so we believe that Sosthenes was the one that dictated, I mean, that wrote down as Paul dictated him this letter. So he, he wrote it down. And then verse 2. So Paul says, to the church of God. So he's commending him saying, you people in Corinth, remember, you're the church of God, which is in Corinth. And he says, I'm writing to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Saints by calling with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Notice what Paul is saying in verse 2. He's saying, I'm writing to you, the church of God in Corinth. I'm writing to those who have been sanctified in Christ sanctified in Christ. And it's important here to grasp this because throughout this letter we're going to be looking at, there is doctrine, wonderful sound doctrine that we need to to grasp and understand. But then there is great application, life application for different things on how to become imitators of Christ. But notice he says to them, He says, those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. He did not say for those who are being sanctified. Now, it begs the question, what does sanctified mean? And of course, many of you know, as you've you've studied and studied the word, that sanctify, to sanctify literally means to be set apart unto. And here, when it's used in the New Testament, it's talking about being sanctified unto God, set apart unto God. So understanding what sanctification is, all right? It's being set apart, and God does the setting apart through our faith. He does it, and his sovereign will, he sets us apart. But there are three things I think it's important that we understand about sanctification before we go on. There are three aspects to the Christian's sanctification. The first one is what we call positional sanctification. Now, I hope you kids can kind of grasp some of this, okay? I'm going to try and make it as clear as I can so you can understand this, okay? Positional sanctification, what is that? Positionally set apart, okay? When does that happen? What is that talking about? 
Well, the day you accepted Jesus into your heart and life, you trusted him by faith to save you. At that very moment, God took you and he set you apart, sanctified you into the family of God. That very instant, the moment of salvation. And at the same time, you were then justified through the righteousness of Christ, through his death on the cross and the resurrection, because he paid the penalty for our sin, and we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to save us. It is then that we are forgiven our sins, and therefore we are set apart and justified into the family of God. And we are forgiven all our sins. Now this position I have, positionally sanctified, is permanent. I am permanently sanctified into the family of God, set apart into the family. Nothing that I do can change that position. You are a child of God this morning. Guess what? I'll see you in heaven. And I'm going to see you for all eternity. And we are going to uh, worship the Lord Jesus and God the Father for all of eternity. Why? Because of the day that you and I were sanctified positionally into the family of God. And no one can change that. You can't change it. No one else can change it. Your sin can't change that. If you're truly born again, you are now a child of God. And what did Jesus say? Again, this goes back to eternal security. Jesus said, no one can pluck you out of what? My father's hand and no one can pluck you out of my hand. I'm standing on that. I'm going to die with believing that. That my Savior holds you, dear Christian, in the palm of his hand. And yes, there are going to be times where you're going to come. There may be times where you'll doubt. Was I really saved? Did I, did I, did I really believe? Did I ask Jesus into my heart? And then Satan will take that and run with it in our minds. And he wants us to doubt the word of God. He wants you to doubt and live your life in such a way that, well, I don't know if I'm saved or not, man. And so therefore, well, it, it may, may, maybe what I did today, I, I lost my salvation because of some sin I committed. This goes back to positional sanctification. It's right here in God's word. So understand positional sanctification. The second phase of sanctification is what we call progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. Now you kids, those of you who are, you're going to school, right? And what, uh, let me see. Uh, Grayson, what, what grade are you in right now? You're in fourth grade. Do you want to stay in fourth grade the rest of your life? No, you do not. So if you don't want to stay in fourth grade, what's after fourth grade? Fifth. Would you like to go to fifth? Okay. What do you have to do to get to fifth grade? Would you say? What's it going to take for you to move on to the next grade? 
Finish your... Finish, right, fourth grade and get good grades. Give him a hand. I think that was great. He didn't know I was calling on him. Yes, sir. Grayson, way to go. You see, now, now I want you to get a picture of progressive sanctification. He wants, he's moving on. But how's he moving on? He better get good enough grades to move on to the next class until he graduates. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, are to be moving on. Once we are saved, you and I must be growing in our knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is and and knowing his word, and thereby getting to know God more and more. And by my knowledge of who Christ is and and, and spending time in God's word, which is what you are doing this morning, and you're getting God's word into your heart and minds, we take the word and we grow by it. We learn by it. So spiritually speaking, it's like we're going from fourth grade to fifth grade, and then fifth grade to sixth grade, that you and I need to move on in our spiritual life by growing in Christ. That's progressive sanctification. Now, just like in regular school, each one of us, we're at different places in our progressive sanctification. And what is progressive sanctification? It's as I live my daily life with Christ, I'm seeking to obey him. I'm seeking to please the Lord and keep from sin. Therefore, I am progressing in my life by maybe suddenly I'm, uh, there was a sin in my life that, that kind of had a hold on me. But through the help of the Holy Spirit and, and understanding what God says about it, I, I, I get victory over that sin. And then I go on and suddenly I have progressed spiritually in my own personal life. Positionally, I'm always sanctified before God. I'm considered set apart. But now I'm growing in Christ, which means progressive sanctification. The last part, the last phase of sanctification then is our final sanctification. And when does that occur? When the resurrection, when we are in heaven and the resurrection takes place. Jesus comes and the dead in Christ shall rise. And at that moment, you and I will be final, have our final sanctification, which will be evident that we will have our new bodies and we will be sanctified for all of eternity visibly. So I wanted you to understand this. So he, what he's saying is this is already, but he's talking about positional sanctification. Paul's saying, church, remember who you are in Jesus. Remember that you've been sanctified. And what does he call them? After that, verse 2, he calls them saints. Saints by calling. Again, saints is another word for holy ones. So you have become holy by your positional sanctification in Christ. And so that you have have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But I want us to understand now as we go on. That verse, verse three, he wants to make sure that they, he, that 
They know where they are in Christ. Nothing can change that. But they're having problems in the church. They're, ha- they're having issues. But yet he's reminding them, remember, those of you who accepted Christ, you are positionally sanctified. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is his greeting. Then we come to verse 4. And let's read it through verse 9. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given, given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you may be enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. Again, he's telling them who they are in Christ. Verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any gift. God's given them everything they need in this life and for all of eternity. And so they're not lacking any spiritual gifts. Awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who shall also confirm you to the end. Blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's our final sanctification. And verse 9. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. There are two specific words. uh, uh, Well, actually three things I want to focus on here in closing. Okay. First of all, what does he say here? In verse 5. He said, in everything, you were enriched in him. Not you are being enriched, but you are enriched in him. The Greek word for this word enriched is is the word plutocrat. How's that one? Plutocrat. P-L-U-T-O-C-R-A-T. Plutocrat. Not Democrat. All right? Plutocrat. Okay? So what did this mean, this Greek word? Well, it was used in those days to speak of someone who was extremely wealthy. Like the term filthy wealthy. They were so rich that... They, they actually had uh, so much money that they were in total control of their lives in every way, shape, and form. We took the, that word and made it an English word, plutocrat. And our definition in English, in our English dictionary, is a person whose power derives from their wealth. Have you ever seen anybody like that who has great power in the world because they've got wealth? It's not because of what they've done or who they are. They've got the money. And therefore, they, they go around and they, they make shots. They, call, they put people into power and positions because they want it because they have the money. And so this word became more of a derogatory term, 
Okay, but I want you to understand why is Paul using this word enriched? He's using it in a good way. He's, uh, he's using the Greek word here, which is speaking of a person who is extremely wealthy. And what's he saying? You and I are extremely wealthy in Christ. This is the message he wants to get across. Turn to 1 Kings with me real quick. 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5. What an amazing story. David died, and now Solomon is the next king in line. And so this is what God does. Verse 5, 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, Ask what you wish me to give you. Kids, can you imagine that? Can you imagine if God came to you and said, okay. You know, sort of like what the, the genie does in some of those fairy tales. You know, what you want, master, I'll give you anything. But God did this with Solomon. What, do you, what would you like? Can you imagine what would you say? What would you ask for? Then look what Solomon says, verse 6. Then Solomon said, Thou hast shown great loving kindness to thy servant David, my father, according as he walked before thee in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward thee, and that thou received from him, thou hast received, I'm sorry, thou hast reserved from him this great loving kindness that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, verse 7, thou hast made thy servant king in place of my father David. Yet, I am but a child. He's telling God. But I'm just a child. I do not know how to go out or go in. You ever feel that way? Like, like, you know, sometimes life is presenting you with something. You have some great responsibility. And, and suddenly your life has changed and you've got all this responsibility. And you're not, you know, you're scared of that. You don't know how to do it or how you're going to be able to take care of this responsibility. So then he says, verse 8. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people, who cannot be numbered or counted for multitude. So give, here's what he asks for. Give thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of thine? You see, he said, Lord, give me wisdom. What I want is to be able to be a king, to govern your people. Lord, I'm asking for wisdom, a discerning heart between good and evil. Verse 10, and it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked for this thing. This is one of the most important things we could ever ask for is the wisdom of God. And according to James, if we ask for it, God will give it to us in abundance. Verse 11, and God said to him, because you have asked this thing, and you have not asked yourself long life for long life, nor have you asked riches for yourself. 
nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before, nor shall there be anyone arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked for. Verse 13, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you in all your days. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, and then I will prolong your days. There's progressive sanctification that God is asking of him. But God gave him all everything. He says, I'm giving you riches too. Oh, let me see. Hmm. Uh, Tucker, okay. Come on, Tuck. Come on up here, please. Yeah, the boys are pointing to each other like, no, take him. Take him. Come on up here, Tuck. Okay. Buddy, how would you like to be one of the richest men in the world? I'd love that. Uh, let's get this, this wireless on. Uh, uh, can you, let me ask him again. How would you like to be the richest man in the world? I would like that. You would. Yeah. All right. We can make you one of the richest men in the world. Bet. Right now. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Okay. I've got a money box. Ooh. I, now, you all those game shows, you got all the, you know, win the money and everything, you know. Who wants to be a millionaire? Okay. Do you want what's in that box or what's behind the curtain? No, no. Do you, do you, all right. Would you like what's in this box? Because it's going to make you very, very, very rich. Sure. Okay. Yes? Okay. Now, I have a key. All right. Now, you don't know what's in there, but here, open it, if you would. And take out what's inside. Are you ready? Yeah. One, two, three. What? What? No. Where's the money? Where? There's no money. What's that? What do you have? A cross. You got a cross. Boy, that's just a piece of wood and it looks pretty worthless. You can't be. Ah, do you understand? To become one of the wealthiest people in the world, you have to come to the cross and know Jesus as your Savior. And I know you do. And therefore, when you ask Jesus into your heart, Tucker, Jesus came in to live inside you. You became that rich person that you have been enriched. And God, through Christ, has given you all the riches of heaven. And one day you will get that. But you have riches here on earth that you can't physically touch. But they are spiritual riches that we will talk about later. But it's all the richness comes through the cross. The cross. And I want you to take this as a reminder. All right, you may keep it. Ezra, give him a hand. Didn't he do fantastic? Thank you. Talk, thank you.
It's the cross. It's the cross. You are enriched in Christ forever. You, you dear Christians, you have the wealth that is unseen. The world can't see it. But Jesus is reserving it for you in heaven. And there are riches right now that you can enjoy. You, can, you have forgiveness of sins. You and I have been redeemed. We have been sanctified into the family of God. Therefore, being sanctified into the family of God, set apart and adopted by Christ, through Christ, we have all the riches of glory and all the riches through Christ Jesus. All the riches of heaven that he gives us now. We have eternal life. We don't need to fear death. And we, we could go on and on about the glorious riches. So turn with me in closing right here to back to 1 Corinthians. I want you to understand he's trying to get across to them. Remember what you have in Christ. You have all spiritual gifts that God has given you. Verse 5. That in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. And then drop down to 7. So that you were not lacking in any gift. You're not lacking anything, Christian, spiritually. Awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing. Notice, he says, church in Corinth, you're awaiting the return of Christ. He's coming again. What does that tell me? That tells me that the Apostle Paul taught the Corinthians about the imminent return of Christ. They believed that Jesus could come at any moment, any time. They believed in the rapture, the rapture of the church. And it could happen today. Today could be our last day on earth. And we will be called up to be with the Lord forever. And all our loved ones will be resurrected. It could be today. But notice, how should they live? Eagerly awaiting his coming. Eagerly awaiting his coming. And... That is the second most important thing Paul is trying to say. First, you are enriched in him. Second, you must eagerly await Christ. But third is this. Take this with you, verse 9. God is what? Faithful. Through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. If, if you're having trouble with everything, you're having trouble believing, holding on to the promises of God, remember this. God is faithful to his promises, to you, and what he's promised you, what he's given you. God is faithful to, to, to carry these things out. To hold you in the palm of his hand and one day to receive you to glory. And he'll be with you through this life. So whatever you are going to face out there this week, out there, would you take this to heart and run it over and over in your mind? Lord, you are faithful. Thank you. I believe that you are faithful. God's faithfulness never ends. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, that you've enriched us as your children. You've given us all the riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And Father, I pray that we might live in such a way that the world may see those riches. 
through the spiritual gifts that we use, fruit, through the fruit of the Spirit that is demonstrated in our lives. While our heads are bowed right now and eyes are closed, dear Christian, if you've been struggling with some doubts, would you just right now say, Lord, I'm bringing my doubts to you. And I believe you are faithful. Father, help me with these doubts. And help me to believe your promises. And understand how rich I am in Christ. Would you make that commitment this morning, Christian? If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, would you do it now? Just open your heart. If you believe that Jesus died for you on the cross and rose from the dead, and you know you need to be saved by him, for he is the only way. And he's the only one that can cleanse you of your sin, and you admit you're a sinner. Would you pray this prayer with me now? The prayer itself doesn't save you, but it's believing in your heart. What This is, this is a, a prayer of confessing your inward faith. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, and I'm sorry for my sin. I believe you died on that cross for me and took the punishment for my sin. Come into my heart right now. Wash my sins away. I receive you today as my very own Savior. Thank you for dying for me and rising from the dead. Lord Jesus. And with heads still bowed, if you gave your heart to Christ, my dear friend, you are now positionally sanctified. You are a child of God forever and ever. Welcome to the family. Heavenly Father, thank you for these truths. And Father, may we continue to walk in them. That we might continue our progressive sanctification until we see our Savior face to face. Bless your word. To our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.